You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Micah Ha. And we are your hosts of this monthly politics and pop culture podcast. If you are a regular listener, you will know that we took last month off. I had a very overwhelming personal month and Micah was so kind and understanding and gave me the month off. But we're back now. And if you are a regular listener, you will also know that our last episode of the year is typically our different things can be sad awards party. So mm-hmm. I believe this is our third year that we've run these. I think we started in 2020. Yeah, that would make Sounds sense. right. Yeah. So this episode will be a little bit different to our regular one. We're going to start off with a little chat and then each of us will be nominating three things we read this year, three things we watched movies-wise, three things TV-wise, three podcasts, and three albums, and then we will be picking a winner, which will be our official Different Things Can Be Sad favorite for 2022. Then we will be wrapping it up with three of the biggest or our most favorite politics and pop culture stories of the year. So to get into things, Micah, how was your December 2020? How are the holidays? Um, they were good. Um, fun times were had before Christmas and then maybe COVID ruined Christmas a little, but that is okay. Um, COVID again. Yeah. Never ends. Um, but yeah, uh, December was really busy, but it was good and got to do some Christmassy things. So I'm glad you got to have that time, Micah, and I'm hoping that you have a very speedy recovery from the COVID Mm -hmm. that may or may not be in your system at this moment. (laughs) We've had some pretty serious exposure, so we're assuming it's a yes, but we're going to keep our fingers crossed. We'll see. Yes. My December was also really busy. I was in Ireland for a couple weeks visiting family, and then I was in uh, California over Christmas, and just a really busy but ultimately joyous family time. I'm very excited to be back in New York, though, because I was away for about a month, which is one of the longest amount of times. Actually, I think maybe the longest time I've been away uh, Mm -hmm. from the city since I moved. And it's really nice to be back in my apartment. I have this really strange week between Christmas and New Year's to occupy. And it's been lovely to just hang out, work on some DIY and craft projects, and play the Game Boy Advance that I have recently found that I got for Christmas in like maybe 2003. So (laughs) good times. Speaking of, or I guess reflecting on the past, what are some of your personal highlights of the year? Mm, I had a long think about this. I think the best part of my year was that I got to see and host so many people. Um, Including me. We came and stayed in your apartment. Yeah. And then we got to go see you again. That was Um, so fun. Yes. Long time listeners of this podcast will know that seeing each other twice a year is pretty good on average for us. So It is. We live thousands of miles apart. I'm in New York. Micah's in Vancouver. And us getting to see each other two or three times a year, good innings. Good innings. Yeah, pretty good. Um, So that was really good. Um, What else? I got to 
enjoy some sunshine in Arizona. Um, I, I got a new job, which was very exciting. Yay! Big life events. Um, I moved. Um, so yeah, it was like many things happened and they're pretty good. It's like a big girl year and one yes. that despite you having probably COVID right now, <laughs> maybe a little less pandemic than the past two. Like you've got to see yeah. people. I got I went yeah. to a wedding, which also felt very adult, like my friend's wedding. Yes. That's a big milestone. Yeah. What about you? What were your like big events of the year? I think the same as you. Moving into my new apartment was a big one. This is the first time that I haven't had roommates and that I have instead been living with a boy. And it has been very fun though. I'm really, really enjoying it. And it feels like I have my own place. It feels very grown up. We've been doing all those DIY bits I mentioned around the place. So it's just been really fun to have this next chapter unfold and to make a house a home and all the other cliches. Mm -hmm. And I also got to have friends and family come visit this year. And I think it'll be even better in 2023 because I have more room for people to stay now in my new apartment. So pretty exciting. Much easier to have guests. And then I think on an achievement level, I read a hundred books this year and I'm really proud of myself for doing that. I got seriously back into reading, I think five years ago in 2018, like the beginning of 2018. Mm-hmm. So it is a full five years. My the eight yeah. 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 We yeah. Um, you know, just after high school and college of having to read so many books for class, I had fallen out of reading for joy and I, yeah, really incorporated it back into my life. I read a hundred books this year. I don't think I necessarily have to do that again. You know, I think (laughs) it's, it's taught me a lot of lessons. I have no regrets. I really am proud of myself, but it's taught me a lot about the kind of books that I like. And I think next year I want to spend less time, no, more time with less books, not the opposite way around. More time with less books, you know, just the ones that I really I'm feeling passionately about. So that's mine. How about you? Uh, Here I was. I'm so like I read 44 books this year and I was like, wow. That's amazing. That is. I was looking back because I've had Goodreads since like, I was in elementary school, like since Goodreads <gasps> was invented. It's been a while. OG Goodreads girly. Yeah, I really need to switch to Storygraph, but there's some sentimentality about Goodreads. Um, and this is the first time I've read over 40 books, like since high school. Um, that's amazing. Like that's what yeah. it's about. And also this was the first year I've read all of the books I read. I read like 100% for myself and not for school. Um Whereas in the past, there's always been, like, a couple that weren't, like, for me. Yeah. Though I, like, still enjoyed a bunch of them. Um, So that's good. I think I will read 45 because I'm, like, halfway through another book. And 45 is a nice round number. I think I'm going to set a goal for 50 next year, which feels, like, beautiful and round. Um, We shall see. Uh, So that's a big achievement. I think the other thing that I'm, like, really proud of this year is I, like, put a lot of time into volunteering and those like really filled my cup and I want to keep doing that in the next year. Um, like seeing, taking new opportunities and meeting new people and community. Um, so yeah, that is my, those were my big achievements, breeding and people. I love those, Micah. That's so great. 
So now that we've done a little recap on our personal years, we have to get into all the things. So we're going to kick off our awards by discussing our favorite books that we read in 2022. Now, for this category, we said that they don't have to strictly have been released in 2022, but I think all of them were, maybe the exception of one that was like yeah. later in 2021. So we're trying to keep it recent for you. Uh, what's going to happen is I am going to read my three nominations, then Micah is going to read her three nominations, and then we're going to announce which book was our ultimate favorite. So the first one I have for your consideration is Every Summer After by Carly Fortune. Mike and I both read this. It is a Canadian dual timeline rom-com that follows Persephone, who thankfully is called Percy throughout the novel, Yes, uh, during her teen years as she spends her summers at a lake house a few hours outside of Toronto and grows closer to a boy next door named Sam. And then we see her one weekend in the present where after more than a decade, Percy and Sam are reunited. And I think the reason I love this one so much is that it was so good at making me feel like I was 13 and it's summer. Like it transports you to the summer of your teenage years. These long days that are stretched out, you know, you can feel the sun, you can like taste the ice cream. It was masterful in that way. So I adored that one. Great summer read. Speaking of great summer reads, uh, Book Lovers by Emily Henry came out this year, and it's another rom-com. But this one is about the other woman we often see in those like Hallmark-esque movies, the extremely type A1 that's always nagging her boyfriend to get back to the big city and back to business when he's visiting a small rural town and falling in love with like the owner of a snow globe store or something mm-hmm. like that. So in this case, we've got Nora, who's a New York City book editor, and she ends up spending her summer in a rural, I believe, North Carolina town. The way I can never get those Carolinas straight in my head, but I'm pretty sure it's a North Carolina town. And she has a romance with a fellow book lover from back in the city. And I think this book was an example of what Emily Henry does best, creating mm-hmm. these very self-aware romantic comedies that play with the genre's tropes in very new and fun ways. So adored that one. And then my final nomination is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Yes. It follows two friends, Sam and Sadie, from the time they meet as children to their mid to late 30s, um, tracking them from LA to Boston and back again. And the kind of core of their relationship is video games, which may seem off-putting. It was to me at first, especially <laughs> because this book is like expert level detail about yes. video games. But that's what makes it so great because even though it's so detailed about a subject that like I don't really care that much about it made me care about it. It was fascinating without being alienating. And I think it was just like a lovely story about the power and complexities of friendship, which, you know, when so many books are, especially the ones I read are more romantic focused. I really appreciated this. Yeah. For so sure. those are my three. How about you, Micah? Well, our list crossover a bit um, yes. for good reason because the books are amazing. Um, the one crossover we don't have is um, one of my favorite books I've read in a long time. It's called The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois um, by Honoré Fanon Jeffers. Um, 
one like really egotistical reason why I love this like I have this book here is that it's very long it's 816 <laughs> pages and uh, I read it and I felt very proud of myself but also not a struggle at all every page is wonderful um uh, I think this is like now a joke on this podcast but um it's a book about intergenerational families um which is a type of book that I read all the time um, that is I like think a fascinating it is um, and this one tells the story of an African-American family in the South from colonization and slavery to their, the youngest daughter of the family researching that history of her family, um, all the, like all the way up to the 21st century. And it's just so grounded in history and like black political thought and so well researched and so well written. And it's just kind of fully immersive, um, would highly recommend taking like it's the perfect thing to do if you're like I don't need a light beach read I just want like something to get immersed in mm. on a vacation um that's like a big recommend and it's now out in soft cover I think it came out like late 2021 so you can get your hands on not like the hefty hardcover the other books on my list um crossover with Yaz because um we are both for one, huge Emily Henry stands. Um, and I also adored book lovers. Uh, I think Emily Henry like writes kind of the platonic ideal of a romance novel. And what I love about it is she takes her readers seriously mm. and like isn't writing down to them and like takes the like wants and desires of women seriously and I really appreciate that in a book because I kind of find that romance can get quite stereotypical and like talk down to its readers and I she doesn't do that ever and I love that very excited um I feel like the new Emily Henry book is like an annual tradition and every May we gotta get one um and this is the book that started my book club this year and Having a book club oh. has been so much fun, and I highly recommend. Yeah. Um, the last book on my list, which is our winner of this year, because it was just so fantastic, is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Um, just, like, one of those books that fully gripped me. And did I have a lot to do when I was reading it? Yes. Did I uh, continue to read it? Uh, yes. Uh it all worked out in the end, and it was a wonderful book, and I loved learning about the video game industry and the relationships between these characters, and I just think if, if you're in a reading slump and you, like, need something to pick up to get you back into the reading groove, this is the book to do that because it's impossible to put down. Totally agree. Totally agree. So, yeah, congrats to Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. You are our winner for the year, which means it is time to move on to movies. Uh, the three movies that I'm going to nominate as my favorites of the year. Number one, Top Gun Maverick. This is the sequel to the 1986 original in which Tom Cruise's character Maverick returns to the Top Gun flight school to train the new kids for a special mission. This one was such a fabulous cinema going experience. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. I thought it was dramatic. There were lots of cute shirtless guys. It is a must. Adore, adore, adore Top Gun Maverick. I got a copy on Blu-ray for Christmas, and it's maybe my favorite present that I got this year. So loved that. 
The second one I'm going to nominate is Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is very difficult to summarize, but essentially Mm -hmm. it's about a woman who starts doing her taxes, but then discovers the existence of different dimensions and then has to save all of reality from an evil force. And I loved this one because not only was it an amazing like sci-fi action movie, but it had so much heart and I think a really nuanced and developed discussion of our main character Evelyn's relationships with um, her family. So mm-hmm. I just love the the complexities of that one. And then my final one is I Want You Back. This is the Charlie Day, Jenny Slate rom-com that I watched way back at the beginning of the year and adored. It's about newly dumped 30-somethings who bond over their heartbreak and hatch a plan to get their exes back, even though those exes have like already moved Mm -hmm. on. And I wanted to nominate this one to remind you all (laughs) to watch it because like, I'm not an early adopter of many things, but I was so on set it up that Mm -hmm. Zoe Deutsch, Glenn Powell, Netflix rom-com from like 2018 when that came out, like I think when it came out, I watched it like four times that weekend and I told everyone about it. And then Micah has been showing me that on Twitter, it's having like a renaissance right now of people of people being like, why did no one tell me Zoe Deutsch and Glenn Powell were in a rom-com? I did. I told everyone. And I don't want you to have to wait four years before experiencing the joy of this one. So I'm going to say it again watch I want you back it is a fabulous modern rom-com and we are kind of starved of those these days so you must watch this one we really are this is yeah, I need to watch we this. really are maybe this will be my COVID movie it's so fun um it's great. so fun um I would say that this year was like a kind of meh year in movies and then it got much better near the end um and I totally agree with some of your choices. I just need to watch. I want you back. Um, <laughs> but my, I had a hard time narrowing down my list, but I think this is a good taste of the things I enjoyed this year. Um, the first is the Fablemans, um, which yes, spared you all of me just like gushing about it for like, like hours in the last episode. Um, cause I had just seen it, but it's Steven Spielberg's new movie. Um, and it's about uh, his youth and how he became a filmmaker. Um, but maybe most centrally, the movie is about the relationship between his parents, um, who are played by Michelle Williams and Paul Dano. Um, Michelle Williams is just like amazing in it. Um, Gabrielle LaBelle it plays um, teenage Sammy Fableman, i.e. teenage Steven Spielberg. And he just happens to be from Vancouver and he's fantastic. Um and I like just kind of when I left, I was like, this was a delightful movie. Like it has every emotion you want a movie to take you through. And if you like have any affection for like filmmaking at all and like the magic that is the movies, um, I think you will love it. But also if you like like re- movies about relationships, um, that it's a wonderful watch. Um, so that's like a big movie this year, like one of the biggest directors of all time. Um, one debut movie that I adored is After Sun, directed by Charlotte Wells. Um, she is a Irish filmmaker um, who I think works mostly in New York now. But it stars Paul Mescal and Frankie Corio, who is um, like a young, like 
up-and-coming actress, um, and it's about a young dad and his tween daughter who go out on a vacation to a very, like, middle-class British resort in Turkey. Um, and it's, it's like, it took a while to figure out where it was happening because the setting was so British, despite, despite the mm-hmm. fact that it was Turkey. Turkey. They play Scottish, um, uh, like, a Scottish family. But they're... It's about their relationship, like, at that point in time, but also about her relationship with her dad um, afterwards. And it's just beautiful. There were some shots that were just so wonderfully executed that it was astounding that this is her first movie. Like, it's just, like, a triumph of a debut. Um, So I would highly recommend if you can go see that in theaters i'm sure it'll do like a little re-release after the oscars if it gets like any love in that or the indie spirits um my final movie is uh armageddon time by uh directed by james gray james gray um like at the end of the year became like one of my favorite directors we went and saw this and then i i think have seen everyone but like two of his movies um, since then, and I hadn't seen any before. It's kind of, this was the year of filmmakers making movies about their childhoods. Um, so Armageddon Time is about, um, Jay's, Gray's childhood, um, yeah, growing up Jewish in, like, 1980s, uh, Queens in New York. Um, and it's about him, unlike, it's not, it has nothing to do with movies. It's about him learning how to do the right thing at the end of the day, like, how to be a good person and how to be a good person when the world isn't necessarily kind to you and others. Um, Anthony Hopkins and Anne Hathaway are amazing. Um, this was one of the only times I cried in a movie theater this year, and I usually, like, am a crier, but, like, this one, out of all of the ones this year, really got me. Um, and if you, like, watch this and you're like, wow, I love James Gray, and you want to go on a James Gray marathon... Uh, we Own the Night is insanely good. Um, it's, um, what is it about? It's about the police in New York, um, but not in, like, a glorifying way. Um, Joaquin Phoenix is in, like, every single James Gray movie except for Armageddon Time. And I had no opinions about Joaquin Phoenix, and now I, like, am a big fan. Because um, he's just fabulous in all of his movies. Um, so, yeah, that is my new kind of discovery of the year both the new movie and movies of the past and you should all go watch them but what is our winner then if our lists are so different yes they are very different but i am pleased to announce that without any strong arming we have come to the conclusion that top gun (laughs) maverick is our favorite movie of the year um yeah it's great it's it's so great best theatrical experience of the year it's and it's back in theaters they took it out and it's back so if you still haven't seen it you need to go see it you must you simply must so on to television three things each that we loved watching on the tv this year for me i'm going to be nominating white lotus season two uh, White Lotus in general is about awful rich people on resort vacations. Uh, mm-hmm. The first season was set in Hawaii. And in this season, we've got a new batch of rich people in Italy. But yeah, this season I loved. For me, it kind of started off slowly, but then it got really crazy towards the end. And it does involve a lot of murder. 
And I think my favorite <laughs> thing about it, though, is like the weekly release schedule. It just like allowed theories to percolate in my mind for seven days. And there was a real sense of camaraderie with anyone else who was also taking part in this seven week or so adventure together. So loved that. I also loved The Rehearsal, which is a show by comedian Nathan Fielder, where he helps people prepare for difficult situations or conversations, like telling a friend you lied about having a master's degree, all the way to raising a child. And he helps them by recreating the situation and running through every possible scenario with them. And I guess that's like the base premise. It eventually evolves into something even more chaotic, but I just found it to be such innovative TV. I've never really seen anything like it. So adored that one. And then finally, the second season of The Sex Lives of College Girls, which came out just a few weeks ago. I watched season one last year, adored season two this year. It's this incredibly fun show about four college freshmen just getting up to shenanigans including this season, one of the girls selling her eggs for tuition money. Yes. (laughs) Which is just like almost kind of treated as normal. It's, It's very funny. It's really hilarious and on the pulse without being cringy. So like you're getting a lot of like modern references, but it doesn't feel lame. I love this one. Thought it was so much fun. And I realized that all my recommendations are from HBO. So Clearly, they know what they're doing. Yeah. How about you? Um, This year saw the end of Better Call Saul, which was um, sad but wonderful. Um, Better Call Saul is the, like, prequel to Breaking Bad. It follows um, Jimmy McGill, a.k.a. Saul Goodman, um, from the Breaking Bad series. And it's been going on for a while. I got into it the last time I had COVID. Um, yeah um and the season the final season was this summer and the same thing of like it came out every week um they did a mid-season pause which was kind of cruel but okay um and the biggest tension in that was there are a couple characters in Better Call Saul who are not in Breaking Bad and the big question is like why aren't they in Breaking Bad what happens to them um and that tension carried through the season so perfectly and the payoff was wonderful and it's a beautifully made show and I would highly recommend going back and seeing it. Very different vibes than Breaking Bad. Like you didn't like Breaking Bad that much, right? Like I you did found not, that super annoying. I I like there's so much lovable and interesting about Jimmy McGill as a character and as a person and Walter White is just kind of evil and I don't find him very complex and interesting. Um, it's very much of its time and in the same way Better Call Saul is like of, even though it's about, takes place in the early 2000s, it's very like present in its treatment of its yeah. characters. Um, so yes, I also did not watch a lot of TV. So <laughs> my other show um, would be Sex Lives of College Girls season one and season two. Um, because mm. this is a really sick themed episode. I watched both of them while I had colds. Um, and it was <laughs> lovely and the best way to live. Um, and I 
like thought they were wonderful and um i'm so excited about this new group of young actresses that are coming out of it um like pauline chalamet is not actually that young but like compared to the others but um she's well the girl who plays zella is 29 oh interesting yeah so there's two of them that are like Pauline Chalamet is 30, uh, the girl who plays Bella is 29, and then the other two are 22 and 25. So they're all actually like yeah. quite a bit older than what they're playing, but uh, makes sense. them considerably so. Yes. Um, and like Renee Rapp, I like am really excited about her career. She's going to be in the Mean Girls musical movie. I think um, she played Regina on Broadway. She did. Or, yeah, yeah. And she has like a singing career now. I was listening to her album this week. Yeah, so very exciting group of um, women in that, and uh, I think we both loved it so much, which is why uh, it is 100% our favorite show of the year, and everyone should go watch it. It's it's very different things can be sad in its theme and betrayal, yes. and so I think if you like our podcast, you will like this show. 100%. Could not recommend more. Speaking of podcasts, let's talk about our favorites of the year. For me, I'm going to recommend The Big Hit Show, which I actually listened to and loved the first series back in January. I haven't listened to the others, to be honest, but so I guess I'm recommending season one of The Big Hit Show. (laughs) In this one, uh, journalist Alex Papadimus explored the enormous success of Twilight. And as a Twihard, I found it really informative and sensitive i learned a lot of new info rather than just like listening to a rehashing of things Mm -hmm. i already knew which i think a lot of times uh if you're super into something when you're consuming content about it it can feel like old news and i also loved that it was really kind to the fans of twilight when a lot of the especially media treatment and like just the social treatment of twilight fans in like 2009, uh, was quite cruel. It also uh, shone a light on important movements within the kind of modern Twilight fandom, particularly the fandom support of the Quileute People's Move to Higher Ground project. So I just thought altogether a really uh, sensitive and well-researched program. For the same reasons, I loved (laughs) Unreal, A Critical History of Reality TV. It is hosted by Siren Kale and Pandora Sykes, the latter of whom was the co-host of the Hilo, an iconic British podcast. And in this series, they track and analyze pretty much like exclusively UK reality TV, but some US as well, uh, from the start of Big Brother in the year 2000 to the boom of Love Island now. And like the big hit show, my favorite thing about it is that it just showed an enormous kindness and generosity to the genre. The hosts are clearly huge reality TV fans. Like one of them is obsessed with the Kardashians. The other one is obsessed with um, The Only Way is Essex and Made in Chelsea. But they can also recognize the flaws of the genre and want to suggest ways that it can be better. So adored that. And then finally, I'm recommending, or I guess nominating, Crimes of the Centuries, which is a true crime podcast that I mentioned earlier in the year as well. It's about cases that were huge when they happened, but are maybe lesser known today. That's a little line from the intro that I've memorized (laughs) after many an episode listened to. 
And again, I just love this one because it's well researched. It's like reading a short but fascinating true crime book. So loved that. How about you, Micah? What makes your top three? Um, my first pick is Normal Gossip, which is in some ways also well-researched because they like do a lot of journalism um, research while doing it. And I love that. It's one of the reasons, many reasons why I love it. Um, it was definitely my favorite discovery of the year. Um, and I have gotten so many people into it by like chatting with them about gossip in general and being like, well, if you liked this conversation we've been having, you will love this podcast. Um, great way to make friends in the workplace is to recommend a podcast to them that you think they'll love. Um, the basic premise of the show is that listeners submit gossip stories that are often derived from a friend of a friend. Um, and then the host uh, invites a guest on who's usually from like the journalism podcasting space and they recount the story um, and the stories are always just like wild and entertaining and really funny um, but it also has like this beautiful depth about like class and gender and kind of the way that um like these forces in society shape our relationships to each other, but all like at the end of the day, it's just like deeply entertaining gossip, um, and it's truly addictive um, and a great like if you're in a funk, like this is the podcast to listen to. Um, a newer show, a podcast that I've been getting into is Free Period, which is hosted by um, Alana Heim and Sasha Spielberg. Um, Alana Heim of the Heim sisters fam, uh, fame and Sasha Spielberg, uh, also a musician in her own right, but also Steven Spielberg's daughter. Um, and their podcast is about being awkward in middle school. Um, basically, they became friends through bonding about like the awkwardness of their past selves. And the show is very like deeply Southern Californian and very early 2000s. Um, and... They, like, have guests on who kind of grew up um, around the same time or area. One of the guests is Rashida Jones, who, like, also um, the Heim sister's mom was an art teacher in the Valley. And mm. she taught, like, many now quite famous people in the film community, including, like, Paul Thomas Anderson and Rashida Jones. But... They're just like, it's kind of like listening to two friends just like have a really fun conversation. Um, and it's very nostalgic. So I would recommend that if you have any nostalgia for that period or like either of them. Um, and then my last podcast, which I just started listening to um, and actually found through um, Vulture did a list of top podcasts of the year um, that they compiled through asking different people in the podcast space about their favorite podcasts, um, which is like a really wonderfully made list. And I we will link it in the description. And Articles of Interest is a podcast about the fashion industry and the history of fashion trends. Um, and it's very deeply rooted in like socioeconomic history and the kind of series that won this like got it into this list is their American Ivy series, which is like eight episodes. And it's about like the American Ivy aesthetic, which I think some of us on TikTok would call it light academia. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like the 
chinos and kind of like ruffled preppy look that is like associated with Ivy League schools in America. Oh, like the old money. I always see old, old money, money kind of. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it turns out that this style had like dates back to like the 1920s and mm. is actually rather international despite its name. And the history is fascinating. And it's not just about like what like wealthy people were wearing. It's about class and what it takes like why people wear the clothes they wear um and i would highly recommend because it's a really interesting deep dive so those are my podcasts of the year all of them really really great but we do have to pick a winner and we are going with like vulture normal gossip uh i listened to some episodes of this this year and loved it as well there was one in particular about these girls going to a One Direction concert with friends they met yes. on Tumblr. Oh my God, I have never laughed so hard. Uh, the funniest bit is that one of them has a sister who was supposed to come and can't come. So she makes like a flat Stanley of her sister. Yes. So, and they call her Flat Margaret. And there's just like a little paper doll that they have to take pictures with for the whole freaking weekend. It is so funny. I listened so to that while I was walking around the streets of Montreal and just cackling to myself. It's so funny. It is so, so, so funny. Oh, Okay, so we have to get on to our last category uh, before we do our politics and pop culture, and that is the albums we listened to this year. My three are just pure pop fun, and they are Harry's House by Harry Styles, Charlie by Charlie Puth, and Midnight's by Taylor Swift. I just realized the first two have the person's name in it and Taylor kind of missed a beat by not doing that. I'm sure you're familiar with most, if not all of them. Just super fun. How about you, Micah? What made your list? Um, Harry Seth is also on my list. I, apparently it was the album I listened to the most this year because it is the perfect album if you're in a funk and need a like pick-me-up. Um, also... Does this even count? It just came out. Um, SOS by SZA is great. Uh, awesome. And then Empty Seats, which also is it maybe a cheat because it's not a full album. It's an EP. Um, but Empty Seats by Tops is amazing. I got to see them live in December Ooh. and they are great and are really nice. And we're like selling their merch um, themselves. And if you can go see them live, they're so much fun um, and a great time. So definitely recommend the experience and the album i will definitely add that to my list i was supposed to see them before but covid foiled that yes. plan there's a running theme in this episode the theme is covid and it is funny because i was listening to our 2021 episode to prepare for this and we were really hoping this would be a less uh pandemic <laughs> year but what you're gonna do anyway micah would you like to announce the album that won our hearts in 2022 yes our uh, different things can be sad. Album of the year is Harry's House because um, yeah. it captured all of our hearts and is also very different things can be sad in its place yes. in pop culture and in its music. So that's why it wins for us. Yeah, I'm so excited to see Harry next year. Twenty twenty two politics. Um. 
I would like to make a little space for everyone else who feels a little overwhelmed and exhausted by politics this year. Mm. Um, maybe it's because I participated in a political process myself. Uh, maybe because uh, the end of the year really came crashing down and it was not the best. Um, regardless, many things did happen. Um, and I thought we would go through a little summary of ones and some that we like haven't had a chance to touch on that much on the podcast but like we're huge um the first uh i don't know if you noticed but british politics kind of blew up this year um oh, in more ways than one the what is going on in the <laughs> house, of, the house commons. of commons yes exactly um many things are going on i think british politics one was just insane but two kind of like is the like microcosm of like everything that has been happening generally in the world um governments have been a little unstable and um it's been hard to deal with kind of the post whatever we mean pandemic uh economy and world um so yeah what what happened in britain so boris johnson has had been prime minister for like four years he uh took the UK through Brexit and the pandemic. Um, were those successful? Apparently not, because uh, many, many, many a scandal followed Boris Johnson around. He held parties during lockdown. He gave contracts to his friends. Uh, he did everything. Um, and that all came to a head this summer when over 50 members of his party stepped down um, from the party. Um, in protest of how he was handling the situation, and he said he wasn't going to step down, and then he did. Um, this is a theme. <laughs> um, and yeah, so then all of a sudden, Britain was without a prime minister, and the Conservatives decided to bring on Liz Truss. Um, this is something that I find really interesting, um, not only because her tenure was so short, but because this is kind of a phenomenon we see not just in UK Conservative Party, but around the world, is when women and people of color are put in positions of like power and leadership in governments and organizations that are like fully failing. Um, and then all of a sudden they have to steer the ship that is sinking. Um, this phenomenon is called like a glass cliff is the term people use and like we see it often um and so you feel kind of bad for Liz Truss who was put in charge of a government that was really struggling and had no unity um but then she like didn't uh really uh do that uh well with the, <laughs> the the what had been handed to her um and i think this her time as prime minister kind of was both hilarious and disastrous in different ways how was it hilarious um well when it became quite clear that she was not going to be prime minister for that long the daily star started a live stream of a lettuce that was dressed up like liz Truss, like a vegetable um and to see who would last longer liz Truss stepped down after 45 days of being prime minister um like days after she said she would never step down um and the lettuce won <laughs> so that was hilarity um disaster also struck um truss was thrust into being prime minister at the 
like during a big economic crisis for the UK and put out a budget that was so out of left field and um, like didn't seem to meet the needs of the country that London bankers started running for the hills and the pound crashed and um, the UK economy is still a little in the toilet, um, more than a little. And then in like confusingly kind of funny in the long term, disastrous for some, but happy for others, um, a very good Jeopardy question in the future, um, as is tradition, Liz Truss went to go meet the Queen. Um, and then not as tradition, the Queen died like days later. Uh, and that was crazy. And all of a sudden, Liz Truss was in charge of a country that was in mourning. Um, so yeah, she, that did not go well. So she stepped down and Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister. He's the first person of color to be the Prime Minister of the UK. Um, but, uh, he's also, like, very much part of, like, the conservative elite. He went to very fancy schools or posh schools, and he is solidly a member of the 1% and really has not shown much sympathy for the really dire situation of the people living in the UK who aren't as fortunate as he is. Um, I think a really good example of that is this video that came out um, right around Christmas where he's at a soup kitchen giving out food and he asks a homeless man if the homeless man works in finance. Oh and the homeless man goes, no, I'm homeless. And then <laughs> it's just the most awkward thing, thing you've ever seen. Um, so yeah, uh, the UK, Britain and specifically, uh, England specifically, not doing so hot. Um, the NHS, the national health system, fully crumbling. Uh, energy is very expensive because of war. Um, and there's like a, so many strikes going on. Oh my gosh, uh, railway, so airport, postal. Um, because people can't afford to live. And the only way to afford to is to get a raise. And so people are using their collective action abilities to ask for that. Um and like similarly out of touch towns, the conservatives have decided that they will pay for MPs to rent cars to drive home to their um, homes outside of London because the train system is so bad, but they won't pay to give striking workers a raise. Um, so yeah, that's Britain. It feels very like everything is on fire and that's kind of how this year felt and sort of felt like a good exemplification of that um the one news story that we like haven't touched at all on this podcast and has been something that obviously um we like really interested in and just haven't had a chance to talk about is the protests in iran um which are still ongoing Mm -hmm. and like we'll see what happens but if you missed it somehow um in september the iranian morality police um arrested masa um amini for not properly covering her hair because in Iran they have, um, they're like a theocratic country and you have to wear um, religious wear. And she was not apparently according to the morality police. And while she was in police custody, she died. And this sparked protests across the country. Um, And many of these protests were led primarily by young women and like young, young women, like teenage girls leaving their high schools to go protest on the streets. 
Um, and now it's been like four months of protesting and about 450 protesters have been killed on the streets and the government is starting to do public executions of protesters. Um, so it's not great. Um, one thing I thought was interesting from like a Western perspective where we are um, is that these protests blew up on social media hugely, um, especially in like kind of like pro-women leftist circles. And um, along with that came obviously like a lot of eyes focused towards Iran and um, like support going that way, but also a huge amount of misinformation which is obviously, like, again, another theme of this year, as it has been for a while now. Um, this information is, like, so easy to spread. Um, and it's happened kind of in two ways, I saw. One was that people were spreading misinformation about, um, like, how extreme the government was being in their repression. Like, now they are executing political prisoners, but, like, in October when people were reporting this, they absolutely were not. And people were just, like, kind of spewing, like, this government is fully evil, like, um, how could they do this? Like, kind of an extreme version of what wasn't, of what was happening. Yeah, I remember seeing other- a post that was, like, 1,000 protesters were executed in Iran this morning, and that mm-hmm. had not happened. Not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the other side, which was kind of in the opposite vein, was, like, people sharing... Um, posts about like the victories that the protesters have had so some the really big one was kind of this misinformation that the morality police had been fully disbanded which wasn't true um and so i think in general if we think about the iranian protesters and like as we go forward and generally protests that happen in other countries as we it's very easy to use like a western perspective on what's happening Um, and we try and like fit it into this box of this is what protests should look like one, um, two, this is how women behave everywhere. And then three, this is like what non-Western countries are like. And this assumption of like, obviously the Iranian government is awful, but like maybe it is not awful in the ways that we like our preconceived notions think of it as, um, there's this term called like Orientalism by Edward Said, which I think is useful on this, of thinking about how we place blame and construct like others and other other countries based on um, like how we're reporting on the news that's happening there, which is very different than the reality um, often. So that's kind of what I was thinking about with the Iranian protests. And then finally, I don't like the biggest politics story of the year that kind of has sparked these other things in some ways um, is that uh, there's a big war happening, uh, cheerily or not at all. Um, Russia invaded Ukraine. We did talk about this, and I think our like January episode or February episode. And yes, I remember you talking about we're like, will they invade? Maybe, maybe not. They have to do it before the ice melts and. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's been like almost a whole year. Um, They did invade on February 24th and we've been living in that world ever since. Um, I think what's been super surprising is that like Ukraine has been really strong in its defense. Um, 
people kind of expected it to be over quite quickly and it hasn't. And uh, that surprised a lot of world leaders and people. Um, in like the biggest, one of the biggest fallouts of all of this is that there are now 7.9 million Ukrainian refugees in Europe. Um, that's only in Europe. Like obviously some of them came more than 7.9 million on top of that, sorry, came to um, North America and other nations. So yeah, it's like many, many Ukrainians are not in their homes anymore and are kind of are spread out around Europe and the world. Um, this also brought us the superstardom of Vladimir Zelensky, um, who has become a household name, it feels like, around the world and has brought like odd joy in the fact that he used to be a reality TV contestant and actor and was on like Ukrainian Dancing with the Stars and like was in a Beyonce parody music video and once played the Ukrainian prime minister and now is the Ukrainian prime minister. Wow, I didn't and know that. Yes. Um, and now he's like a war hero. Um, and I think that that trajectory is like the true different things can be sad, po like pop culture to politics trajectory um, and back again. Cause like now he's like solidly a fixture in pop culture in a weird way. Yeah. Um, I saw a very funny tweet that was like, Every five-year-old that has named Khaleesi is about to get a brother named Zelensky. Uh, <laughs> Very true. Um, so yeah, recently Zelensky came to the U.S. Um, and this was his first time outside of the country since February, outside of Ukraine. And he talked to Congress in D.C. asking for more support because I think we probably all noticed that um, the general kind of at the beginning in February and March, like, if all anyone was talking about was the Ukraine, if it's Ukraine and the war, but now it's very much kind of at the back of people's minds with rising inflation and an energy crisis, which is in part caused by um, like a war happening and Russian sanctions. Um, but I think what's really interesting about him coming to Congress is that the divisions that you would like typically think about in politics are quite different. You normally think of like more like right-leaning Republicans to be very supportive of supporting like war and countries who are facing okay. Russia as an aggressor, um, harkening back to like the Cold War and American um, America not liking Russia at all. Um, but that isn't the case, and it's mostly Biden and the Democrats who want to be supporting um, Ukraine and Zelensky and a lot of right-wing media being very anti-Zelensky, um, which has been fascinating. So I think in 2023, um, like this war will continue and an energy crisis in the UK and Europe and the UK will continue. And what will that look like? Who knows? We're coming up on a year very soon. Um, but I think it's an interesting one to show that like, yeah, um, maybe we didn't, the World War III that kind of people were predicting has not happened yet. Um, but also like political affiliations change so quickly and interestingly, especially in the U.S. Um, so it's one to keep watching out for, even if it feels like it's never ending because something will, like it will end and like it's an ongoing conflict that should be like kept in the back of our minds.
on to pop culture. For my three stories from 2022, I've decided to go with my personal favorites. There are obviously some big ones that we haven't spoken about in too much depth in the podcast, but uh, would be a lot to unpack right now. We have things like the Amber Heard versus Johnny Depp trial, everything Kanye did, but just to keep this section as a (laughs) nice little um, sweetener after some pretty heavy politics content. We're just going to go with my favorites. So first up, we have the Harry Styles, Olivia Wilde, Jason Sudeikis triangle. And I'm going to give you a debrief on this whole thing because it actually went on for multiple years. This was the kind of big year. And I think uh, there was just so many instances where this was like the top news story that we need a little refresher. So we first saw pictures of Harry Styles, the singer slash superstar of our times, and director Olivia Wilde holding hands in January 2021. This was after it was announced that he would be starring in a movie that she was directing. Mm -hmm. And it was also shortly after her breakup from long-term fiancé, the actor Jason Sudeikis, was announced. So that was a while ago. That was like over nearly two years ago now but things really got hectic this year some key instances i would like to draw your attention to in august olivia wilde attended cinemacon to discuss her upcoming movie don't worry darling the one in which harry Styles stars and while she was on stage a proxy on behalf of jason sudeikis served her with custody papers regarding the two children they share together Mm-hmm. That was a wild moment. This is also the same month where actor Shia LaBeouf denied Olivia's claims that he was fired from the movie Don't Worry Darling and seemingly shared the receipts to prove that she was lying. We actually shared a lot about this in our Dancing Politicians and the Age of Outrage episode, if you'd like to go back to it. After that whole fiasco, we had, I think, the biggest, the the, yes. the big climax, the premiere of Don't Worry Darling at the Venice International Film Festival in September. So leading lady Florence Pugh skipped all the press for this movie, despite her being the main star. And this added fuel to the very long-running rumors that she and Olivia Wilde were feuding. Mm-hmm. There was also a video that circulated where it looked like Harry Styles spat in fellow actor Chris Pine's hands. This was like, is the dress black and blue or gold and white of our times? Like everyone was arguing over what happened in this visual. I think they both denied it. I know Harry definitely did. He made a joke about it while he was doing his 50 or so night run at (laughs) Madison Square Garden. And then... I think actually this is my favorite part of the story. In October, Olivia Wilde and Jason Sudeikis' ex-nanny gave a tell-all interview to the Daily Mail. I think my favorite thing about this particular story is that she did like a video interview, like an audio interview, but her Mm -hmm. face was just like a silhouette and she really looked like Kelly Clarkson in the silhouette. (laughs) she claimed a lot of bizarre things, things that Olivia Wilde and Jason Sudeikis have like denied. But the craziest one was that when Jason found out that Olivia was leaving their home and bringing her special salad dressing, 
to Harry Styles, he lay down in front of her car to stop her from leaving. Can I say my favorite part about this is that the salad dressing recipe is not that special and super basic. Yes, it is uh, Nora Ephron's recipe from her book Heartburn, but like literally just a vinaigrette. Yeah, That's it's like, like fun... I make it all the time. Easy yeah. peasy. Yep. Fun detail to that story. Uh, this is also the year that Harry and Olivia split in uh, November. They announced it. And a few people did point out that the timing of this was a little interesting. It was the week before Thanksgiving. So people were kind of like pretty busy, not maybe paying as much attention to pop culture news as they would at other times. Press for Don't Worry Darling had wrapped up. Harry had just wrapped up the U.S. leg of his Harry's House tour. And he'd just been nominated for a Grammy. So there had long been speculation that the whole thing was a PR stunt. Mm -hmm. I personally don't think so because I'm like, why would Harry Styles need to be in a PR relationship? I I don't understand why as like the biggest star in the world you would need to do that. Especially when it pulled you into some pretty messy family drama. But I do think that maybe some career considerations played a part in the ending of the relationship. Mm. Counterpoint. Yeah. Two Harry Styles movies this year. Don't Worry Darling, huge. Like, didn't make, like, an insane amount of money, but everyone was talking about it. Who was talking about My Policeman? No one. Maybe just, like, the hardcore Harry Styles fans. Yeah. But is dating someone less famous than you the best way to get? the press like I just think if you were I I think there's a thousand more ways Harry Styles could get more eyes on his movie my first piece of advice would be to use Instagram like clearly he just has someone uh like all he does is just post like a tour picture and then like right now in Houston uh you know (laughs) my advice would be like to use social media if they were that desperate for PR and then if he had to do a PR relationship date Taylor Swift again you know uh (laughs) That would, I could see that as more of PR. But anyway, I just thought that story took so many wild twists and turns. And last year I nominated um, John Mulaney and Olivia Munn's relationship roller coaster as one of my top stories. And I think this is kind of like this year's version of it. It just, it just went in some directions no one was expecting. I don't think spitting in Chris Pine's hand was on anyone's bingo card for the year. Mm -mm. Another thing that might not have been on your bingo card is... I guess the resurgence of Leah Michelle, who is now suddenly top of <laughs> yes. mind for everyone. I believe we discussed like last year or the year before the resurgence of Robert Pattinson when he was everywhere and it was someone that we had not thought an awful lot about since like 2009. Same for Leah Michelle. She is the former Glee star that has been involved in three huge stories this year that I'm going to touch on. So the first one relates to the Broadway musical Funny Girl. And I think Leah's connection to this musical dates back to when Glee premiered in 2009. And Vox actually called her six-year stint on the show a six-year audition for the lead role of Fanny Bryce (laughs) in Funny Girl because – her character, Rachel Berry, is like a huge fan of the show. She performs multiple songs from the show in Glee. And, you know, off 
camera off Glee, Leah Michelle also talked about being a huge fan of the show. She had um, a very good relationship with Glee director Ryan Murphy, who at one point owned the rights uh, to a funny girl musical. It hadn't been on Broadway for decades, but those rights lapsed. And actually in August, 2021, a revival was announced, but actress Beanie Feldstein was cast in a late role, not Mm -hmm. Leah Michelle. And this was reportedly because reportedly because Leah Michelle had been a nightmare to work with. As an example, uh, back in June 2020, Leah Michelle tweeted her support for the Black Lives Matter movement after the murder of George Floyd by the police. And her former Glee co-star, Samantha Ware, who is Black, replied to the tweets accusing Leah Michelle of bullying her on the set of Glee. Samantha Ware tweeted and then deleted... Remember when you made my first television gig a living hell? Because I'll never forget. I believe you told everyone that if you had the opportunity, you would shit in my wig, amongst other traumatic microaggressions that made me question a career in Hollywood. And so some pretty serious yeah. uh, stories here. And many other Glee cast members have um, more in more roundabout ways expressed a, a discontentment with working with Leah Michelle. But this year, in June 2020, because we're talking about 2022 stories, it was announced that Beanie Feldstein would be leaving Funny Girl after many critics and audiences found her performance a little underwhelming. And Leah Michelle was announced as her replacement. Mm-hmm. In September, she started performing in it. Uh, her former Glee co-star Jane Lynch also made an early exit from Funny Girl, and people were kind of questioning if she just didn't want to do any dates with Leah Michelle. Yep. And on her first show, Leah Michelle got four standing ovations. I think the uh like the the best way to sum up like the very mixed feelings around this is a screenshot of uh, Chris Colfer's character in Glee saying, She may be difficult, but boy can she sing. <laughs> in other Leah Michelle news, um This was the year that a theory that she can't read exploded on the internet. It has actually been going around since 2017, where uh, these two podcast hosts alleged that because Leah Michelle was a child star, she made like her Broadway debut when she was eight, that she has simply never found the time to learn how to read or write. Now, there's never, you know, there hasn't been an occasion where someone like has said, hey, Leah, write this down. And she has been unable to or like she has been unable to read something on camera it's more been little things like people pointing out that she frequently works with the director ryan murphy to keep the circle of people who know her secret small um there is like pictures of her assistant on her like using leah michelle's phone so people think that when uh instagram caption has emojis just emojis in it leah michelle has written it but when it has words it's her assistant Lots of things like that that, like, a lot of people found substantial. I, in my research, am struggling to find anything that is substantial. Like, one of them was mm-hmm. she was signing a book and her pen was, like, in the image, her pen was way above the paper. And I'm like, yeah, she could be lifting or putting down the pen. Like, I don't really get that. But anyway, yeah. um, Leah eventually made a very funny TikTok about this when she joined the platform 
she joked about calling her friend and another former Glee co-star, Jonathan Groff, to read the comments for her because she was unable to. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of well hand- handled in the end. Finally, Leah Michelle is at the center of the ongoing discussion. This kind of happened really in like December about buccal fat removal. And this is a plastic surgery trend, which is an awful thing to say, that has yes. really blown up at the end of this year. It's essentially getting the fat from your cheeks removed so that they have this like snatched uh, look to them. I, I also personally think it plays into this revival of the thin is in 90s heroin yes. chic body type coming back, which is awful. Like it's very strange the different body types or looks are considered trendy at certain times and that people feel a need to be on trend, like a societal pressure to be on trend with your own body. Like clothes and hair is one thing, but changing your body. Anyway, people have started speculating that Leah Michelle has recently had it done because her face is looking extremely chiseled lately. Um, I did see one funny comment that uh, someone was saying she looked like she was smuggling a Nintendo Switch out of Walmart in her mouth because uh, <laughs> now her jaw has like a very square look to it and then there's sort of like more mm-hmm. hollow cheeks. But as I was saying, this one is just like a really fascinating story because it's there are it's a long-term commitment for short-term benefits. As we know yeah. with everyone dressing in like Y2K stuff at the moment, trends are cyclical. But if you're making them to your body, you have to live with them forever. And there's also this like concern that buccal fat removal will actually make you look older and like hollowed out as you age. So it's a it's a strange one to have kicked off, but there always seems to be a new plastic surgery trend. And I think that is quite troubling. So they're my Leah Michelle stories of the year. My final uh, favorite pop culture story is The Rise of Corn Kid, another big star Mm -hmm. of 2022. Um, I did also enjoy, I will say, honorable mentions to uh, The Slap, which is Will Smith smacking Chris Rock at the Oscars, and uh, The Summer of Cheating, which was the Adam Levine, Try Guys, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But I went with, I think, the most wholesome story of the year, which is Corn Kid. So if you don't know, which I'm sure you do, there is a web series called Recess Therapy where 23-year-old Julian Shapiro Burnham interviews children around New York City. And this summer, he interviewed a seven-year-old called Tariq at Smorgasburg, which is a food festival in Brooklyn. And Tariq was very enthusiastic about his love for corn. And this clip went viral because he was just so adorable talking about corn Mm -hmm. it went even more viral when the gregory brothers who are a musical quartet responsible for that chrissy wake up i don't like this tiktok sound they're also responsible for double rainbow all the (gasps) way across the sky wow wow oh my god so intense they do everything if if there's like a a funny little tiktok song it it may be them They also got involved in Corn Kid. They made a remix of his video and that blew up as well. I think that's maybe the most iconic part of it. I'm sure you've all heard the, it's corn, a big lump with knobs. 
I shouldn't be saying on the podcast, but a big lump <laughs> with the knobs is very iconic. Mm-hmm. The original YouTube video, Recess Therapies one, uh, has now been watched more than 10 million times. And the Corn Kid Instagram reel of that has been viewed 30 million times. Tariq has just like blown up uh, since then. He attended the LA premiere of uh, Pinocchio, where he adorably did not know who Tom Hanks was. <sighs> he's seven. Um, he starred in a Chipotle ad. That one's actually really funny. It's like you don't see who the customer is, and the person is just asking, like, would you like beans? Would you like cheese? And you just hear no, no, no. And then they finally ask corn, and then you pan up to him, and his face is like alight with excitement <laughs> about corn. Uh, he also taste tested corn themed foods on the Drew Barrymore show. He was named South Dakota's official corn ambassador. Uh, Thanksgiving, he partnered with the brand Green Giant and food charity City Harvest to give out 50,000 tins of corn in Brooklyn. He also appeared on a float at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Kid is living the dream. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's been like concerns about the sudden fame uh, for a child. You know, people are worried that he's being made to do these like money-making endeavors um, that maybe he might not want to so that other people can benefit. Um, Somebody did tweet, and I quote, watching the corn kid get put into every ad on the planet and instantly become a lifeless and joyless aspect of the capitalist machine is not fun. Which is a point. But it seems that I'm definitely hoping that Corn Kid is just like having a ball talking about his favorite vegetable. Uh, Tariq and his family are getting a cut of the profits from the musical remix and Reese's Therapy are protecting Tariq's identity by not sharing his last name. Like we still don't know that. And they have confirmed that he is happy out. He loves talking about corn, but he does also like broccoli. They want the world to know that. So nice. I just thought that was a wholesome story. I hope he's having a good time. Um, I mm-hmm. hope you've loved recapping on Corn Kid, Leah Michelle, and a Hollywood love triangle. Who would have thunk it at the beginning of this year? Alrighty, well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Different Things Can Be Sad and our final one for the year. So, Micah, what are your goals for 2023? I thought we should just, like, discuss those a little bit before we head into January. Yeah. Um, One of them I mentioned was to read 50 books, which Mm -hmm. I think is totally doable. Very excited. Um, The other is to um, sew more. Um, I have a wonderful sewing setup, and I have not had the time to do it, but I'm very excited to, like, work a nine to five and then come home and like do my hobbies and like just like live my best hobby life so that is the goal I love that they're very good goals um similarly hobbies are my goals for 2023 I want to play my Game Boy more um I'm just loving it it's so fun it's so nostalgic (laughs) and it's just a a fun activity and I also want to crochet a temperature blanket this year. Ooh. Yes. I've been wanting to do one for years. People have been telling me they're all over TikTok at the moment, so that's exciting. Yes. Um, I'm doing one in this, like, kind of cool muted pastel-y tones that I think will look really cute in my apartment. It will take, obviously, a year before I have a full blanket. Yes. 
But I really want to explain to the people what a temperature blanket is. Yes, of course. That is a great point. So a temperature blanket is basically where you assign a different color of yarn to a different temperature. So actually, to give you my one, for instance, when it's below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, I'll be using slate gray. When it is, let's say, above 90 degrees, I'll be using a color called raspberry. When it's between 51 and 60, I'll be using a color called meadow. Etc. Etc. There's just some examples. You're doing this in Fahrenheit. It was actually okay. I don't know Fahrenheit at all, but it made like because the the spans between the numbers are so big, yes. it made it kind of easier to map out than Celsius, where we're okay. talking about a much one point range. for Fahrenheit. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it has a lot of benefits, and I do think everyone should use Celsius. But if you need to make a temperature blanket, it's a good way to map out your colors. Mm-hmm. And can confirm for the viewers at home, the colors are very cute. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, I'll be doing one line a day. So I've decided that, like, the temperature at, like, 12 p.m. in New York City is what I'll be looking at. And I'll just be crocheting a single line in that color. And then I'll come back the next day and do the same thing. And then by the end of the year, I should have a big old blanket that documents the temperature every day where I live. And I think it'll be a cool little memento to have and also probably healthy for me because I get very sucked into my hobbies sometimes. And I think it's good mm-hmm. that I can just do one line a day. That's all I have to do. So, yeah. Are you going to do where you are or only New York City? I think I'm going to stick to New York because, like, I think it could get quite – like, I don't think it would get the spread that I'm looking for if I'm hopping around to different places. Like, I plan to be in Ireland over – uh, the summer, and while I'm sure it'll be above 90 or raspberry in New York, it, it, it could be it could be like 41 to 50 vanilla cream in Ireland. And <laughs> I think for consistency reasons, I'll just stick to where the apart where the blanket lives will be part of the documentation. So those are my goals. If you would like to keep up with our goals and us as a podcast in 2023, uh, my individual. Instagram handle is at Yasmin Lomax. Micah, what's yours? At Micah Hahn. And our podcast is at DTCBS Podcast. And we can't wait to share maybe a little bit more about our award winners on there as well. Mm-hmm. Until next time and next year. Bye. Bye.